Um, I just want to tell a story at the beginning. So Thanksgiving is coming, but Christmas is also coming. And uh, when I graduated high school, my mom uh, moved uh, to Colorado Springs with my brother and sister. I don't know if you know my brother, Seth. He was here, he and his wife, Emily, and their little girl, Ruth. Uh, are here at Grace Fuller and they come first service. So I can tell the story more fully now because he's not looking me in the eye. Um, <laughs> but there's a big age gap. I'm 12 years older than Seth and 10 years older than my sister. So in my college years, they all relocated to Colorado Springs and I went to school out here. So every Christmas I would fly out and spend Christmas with them. And uh, one of our traditions, I'm not sure exactly when it started, but uh, would be it, someone would get a jigsaw puzzle as a gift for Christmas every year, usually a really, really complicated one. Um, and then for the rest of the break while I was out there, the dining room table was just jigsaw puzzle. And it was just what we did, sipping coffee with the snow outside in Colorado. And, uh, but, but during those years, my brother and sister were like six and eight, seven and nine. They were still in those gullible, you know, easily fooled years. And so as soon as that jigsaw puzzle came out every year, I pocketed like a center, like a, a, a middle piece. <laughs> And I just kept it all week long in my room. And usually when it got to the point where I could tell, oh, this puzzle's going down today, I'd go up to the room and I'd bring this and I'd have it in my pocket. And you know, there's, if you work on a puzzle with more than one person, there's that part where it's like, oh, it's all falling into place and the hole's getting smaller and smaller. And I would just wait. And my brother is all in when, as a kid, man. He's looking down and not looking around. And, and it would get to that last spot where there's one piece left and he'd go like this and, and look all around. And I would just be standing there with the piece <laughs> like, like this. And two or three years in a row, I think I got him. Finally, he's like, I'm not, I'm not gonna fall for that. So he'd grab one at the beginning every time uh, too. But I hear would be standing here with the very last piece and it would just kill him and my sister that I would finish the last little piece. So we have been preaching through the gospel of Mark for a year and three or four months. And I've done it again. I've, I've actually grabbed the last piece that makes the whole picture come together right here. This is the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the exclamation point on Mark's gospel. And it's really um, the, the, at the heart of our faith. Paul uh, said, if, if this didn't happen, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, we are all wasting our time here and we are among those most foolish in the world. Um, but it has happened, uh, praise the Lord. And so I get to finish. I get the last piece to stick in this morning. So uh, I didn't grab the piece all the way at the beginning. It just sort of worked out that way. So, um, But I want us, as we begin, to turn to Mark 15. Uh, verse 42, and we'll read from there through Mark 16, 8 in just a bit. That's where we're going to end uh, Mark's gospel. Um, uh, I'm not going to go into it now, but at the beginning of our reading service a few, uh, couple months back, we, we talked about there are some remaining verses in, in the gospel of Mark. There's brackets around them probably in, in your version of the Bible because uh, most likely uh, from 9 through the end of the chapter, we're not in uh, Mark's original gospel. The earliest and best manuscripts don't have those. They end at verse 8. And anyway, that could be, we actually had a sermon about that, but I won't revisit this morning. So in case you're wondering, why are we stopping right here? Um, our, our, our belief is that this is right here what, uh, where Mark's gospel ends for us. Um, and it is a little bit different of an ending compared to uh, Matthew and John uh, and Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke and John. Um, but in some ways, uh, it's a very appropriate ending for a gospel, as I think we'll see. But I want to connect the dots to this hymn we just sang. Uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If you've grown up in the church, you might have sung that song 
500 times, 200, depending on what kind of church. Maybe you grew up in a church with no hymns and you never sang that song. But I grew up singing that song over and over and over. I've probably sung it a thousand times uh, in my life. And there is something so good about singing uh, the same hymns uh, over and over and over. Um, one of the reasons is that uh, the song might not change, but our lives do. And our lives are different every time we sing them. So we sing a hymn in particular like this, and we sing about um, in every high and stormy gale when life feels like that, or when life feels like an overwhelming flood, or when life feels like everything around my soul is giving way, things that I, I, were, I was counting on, God is taking away. Every time we sing this hymn, maybe... It's a whole new, you're, you're in a storm that you weren't in last time, or something feels like an overwhelming flood that wasn't the last time you sang it, um, or things have fallen away, the Lord has stripped some things away since the last time you sung it, or maybe not. Maybe you've been singing this hymn, and for years, you feel like you've been in the same high and stormy gale, and it just hasn't stopped. And this song, every time we sing it, forces us to re-ask ourselves the question, what is my ultimate hope resting on? This week. What is my ultimate hope anchored in this week? Hope is like an anchor, uh, an anchor's mooring. Hope is the thing that our anchor is sunk into to help us stay steadfast when stuff around us is shifting, like all around my soul giving way. The anchor, uh, the hope is like the mooring of the anchor. And the question is, what is our anchor sunk in? Is it sunk in something that stays put no matter all the stuff falling apart? Or is my anchor in one of these things that falls away? And then what? And the song has us sing, my anchor holds within the... Veil. Does that sound familiar? Last week, Jesus on the cross exhales his last breath. The veil of the temple is torn in two. And the book of Hebrews later tells us, you know, not only was the physical veil of the temple torn open, the barrier between sinful people and this holy place in the temple that God had said, you may not go in there because you, may, you cannot stand my holiness. But Hebrews tells us there was a reality, a greater reality than just that curtain that was torn in two, um, and it was actually into the presence of God. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So we're singing about when we sing, my anchor holds within the veil. Jesus has gone behind the veil as our forerunner. He's gone through security, right? This barrier that we can't approach God in our sin because he's holy and we can't endure it. Jesus has actually entered in there as a forerunner, which means he intends to bring people with him. And not just into the temple, but into the reality, the very holy presence of God, where one day with him, we will enjoy his whole holy presence and glory forever without being burned up or destroyed. Because like we sang, we are dressed in his righteousness alone. We are covered with the righteousness of Christ and we will deserve to be there because of Christ. Not because of us. But because of Christ, we will be. So when we sing our anchor holds within the veil, my hope 
is anchored there is what we're singing. So here's a question. How did Jesus get there behind the veil as our forerunner? He got there by going into the grave and he got there by coming out of the grave. That's our last two sections here. Jesus is buried and then there's an empty tomb. So we're gonna read the first section and and think a little bit on on Jesus' burial first and then we'll read the second section. So sort of like two smaller sermons here. I really want us to consider the burial of Jesus first. Let's read, sort of comment as we go and then I have a few points for us out of the burial. Mark 15, 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, the day people prepared to stop working and rest, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So let's just stop there. This man, Joseph, of Arimathea, so he's a specific Joseph that Mark is assuming his audience would know some of them and be able to identify that Joseph. Who is this guy? He's one of those one-hit wonders in the Bible, you know, these people that just show up in one little scene like the guy who carried Jesus' cross and then we never hear about him again. And that's Joseph. We, this is all we know about him is in this, these two sentences right here and in his mention in the other three gospels. All four gospels uh, mention him by name and record that he buried the body of Jesus in his own tomb. Who was he? Mark tells us a couple things. Luke and Matthew add a couple. But first Mark says he was a respected member of the council. Not just any council. He was a respected member of the council that that condemned and called for Jesus' crucifixion, the Sanhedrin. He was a member of that council. The guy who buried Jesus was part of the group that arrested and and ran Jesus through this mock trial and stirred up crowds to yell, crucify him, give us Barabbas. But he was a dissenting member. Luke's gospel says that he had not consented uh, to their decision or action against Jesus. So here's this one lone man in the Sanhedrin that didn't consent to that, that wasn't calling for Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, Matthew says he was a disciple of Jesus. Mark says he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. So what that means, probably, if you think all the way back to the beginning of Mark, is as Jesus went around around preaching, his message boiled down to, the kingdom of God is here at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Believe in the gospel. So if this man had been one who himself was looking for the kingdom of God, and Matthew calls him a disciple of Jesus, he must have at some point repented and believed in the good news Jesus was preaching about the kingdom. So he was a disciple John MacArthur, preaching pastor, he he calls uh, Joseph an unexpected testimony of faith in Christ by a member of the Sanhedrin, an unexpected testimony. That phrase struck me. I think there's a lot of people that we would think of as being the the last person you would expect would (coughs) repent and, and embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. Maybe people are on your mind right now. You think that is the last? I could never imagine that person. How about a guy who was on the Sanhedrin, who's, 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 con, who's conspiring to, to kill Jesus? This guy trusts Christ and actually is the only one still there asking for his body to bury him afterward. 
should stand as a reminder to us that faith in Christ can spring up in whom and wherever God wishes. People we think will never, God saves. We should pray that way, not just pray for those that seem most likely so. Let me just help God give a little nudge in prayer, but pray for those we would last expect. Here's this man you might last expect, and he's a disciple, and here he is. And what does he do? He says, it says he takes courage. He, he literally, he dared ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Took courage because He's a respected member of the council and they've just crucified Jesus. He's a condemned criminal. All of his disciples have fled for fear that they were gonna get lynched as well. And here he is, he's gonna go publicly identify himself with that crucified criminal Jesus and ask for his body and go bury it. So yeah, he dared. He took courage and he goes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body, which also reminds us all the disciples are still gone. Right When it says that they all scattered, even after Jesus is dead, it's not like Peter slinks out of the shadows and, 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 and takes care of the body. The disciples don't. Just one man steps forward and asks for Jesus' body. And if he had not, Jesus' body probably just would have been discarded into a common grave like other criminals who died a crucifixion death. But Joseph steps forward, takes courage, and in love and honor of the body of this rabbi that he had come to believe in and follow and trust, he asks for his body. Verse 44. So Pilate, when he's asked, was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Sometimes crucifixions took days, two or three days. People hung and suffocated little by little and hung on and hung on and finally died. So in a few hours, it's natural. Pilate said, he's already dead? So let's keep reading. Summoning the centurion, who was a witness, he asked him whether he was already dead. So, so far we have two witnesses, Joseph, centurion, asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion he was dead, he granted the corpse to Jesus. So here's Joseph again, this respected uh, leader among the Jews. It's about ready to be the Sabbath. Rather than, than keep himself ceremonially, un, or ceremonially clean for the Sabbath, he goes and he takes the, the corpse of Jesus, the dead body, defiling himself to go and care for it and lay it in a tomb. It's a picture of, of love, right, and honor. Verse 46, and Joseph bought a linen shroud. So he personally pays for some of the materials to, to bury Jesus. And he takes him down, wraps him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So these women who had uh, been following Jesus throughout his Galilee ministry and who had actually been watching as he died on the cross at a distance, now they actually follow to the tomb where he's made, uh, buried and they witness the process. And the author of life is buried and they roll the stone and seal the tomb. End of scene. So here's a question. Why do we need uh, an account of Jesus' burial in the Gospels? Um, Mark's made it clear that why Jesus died. He died to give his life as a ransom for many and he's given up his last breath and the veil was torn. Why not just move to the resurrection? Why not just he died for our sins and now he rose 
to new life. And, but all four gospels actually go into detail and tell us about the process of Jesus being laid in a tomb and the, and the stone being rolled. Paul later says, um, I want you to know things that are of first importance, he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered things to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. So Paul includes that. He says, burial is part of the, the, the things that are of first importance. The Apostles' Creed has Jesus being buried in it. It doesn't just say we believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and raised. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Fred Sanders, who, who's a member at Grace and teaches at Biola, um, said to me one time, it's sort of like it's saying he was crucified, dead, and really dead, right? It's like it's emphasizing, okay, I get it, he's dead. Jesus' burial is significant for, for a, a number of reasons. I want us to, to consider five. So if you're taking notes, my first big point has five parts to it. Significance of Jesus' burial. Number one, it testifies that he really died. Eyewitnesses, describing the burial of Jesus' corpse in a tomb uh, and, and closing the door um, testifies that, that he really did die. His spiritless body was wrapped up and, and, and then laid in a tomb. Uh, one of the common attempts to discredit um, and dismiss the resurrection uh, through the centuries has been to say, well, he, didn't he didn't really, really didn't die. He was just mostly dead, like the Princess Bride would say, right? He had swooned or he had, he had been so unconscious that, that he had been mistaken for dead and was and wrongly. But Mark is not leaving room for this. He keeps using the dead word over and over. Twice in verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear he'd already died. When he asked the centurion whether he was already dead, the centurion confirms, dead. And Mark makes, says, and he, and he gives him the corpse, of Jesus, not the body, but the dead body of Jesus. And then it describes Joseph's care for the body. Joseph, no doubt with help, personally buried Jesus. So it says that they, he, he, Joseph took him from the cross and brought him to the tomb and wrapped him in a shroud and laid him in place. This must have taken at least a few hours closely, personally handling the, the body of Jesus. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen a body after death, but already immediately signs begin to show themselves. And John says that Joseph buried him in the traditional custom of the Jews, which was, which was careful, trimming the hair and washing the body carefully and anointing it with spices and, and wrapping it with cloth and laying it in. So Joseph would have known he was dead. And Joseph lays him in the tomb. Mark is establishing for the record here, first fact that this is a real burial. This is history. This isn't myth here. Jesus died and his burial testifies to it. Second significance of Jesus' burial. It also then reinforces the reality of the resurrection. Once he's established that Jesus really died physically, his spirit left his body and a corpse was laid in a grave then when witnesses, eyewitnesses testify to seeing and touching and talking with the, the living Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, that testimony is reinforced by the testimony of his death, right? So the burial reinforces this reality. No, this isn't explained away. You know, another way that uh, over the centuries, the, the, the resurrection has been uh, 
attempted to be discredited is by saying, well, they went to the wrong tomb. The women just got mixed up and they went to an empty tomb and they thought, oh my gosh. And meanwhile, he was buried all along. But again, Mark is saying, no, 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 that's not the story. You see, these witnesses have names. Joseph has a name. He's a respected member. He handled the body. He put it in. The other gospels even say it was the tomb uh, owned by him. It belonged to him. I think he would have known which one it was. And then these women keep getting named and the burial was witnessed by them. Mark uh, 14, 1547 says they saw uh, where he was laid. And not just the tomb he was put in, but the other gospels even say um, uh, in Luke says they even saw how the body was laid. So they got close enough that they saw where Joseph laid him. What shelf or bench in this tomb? I mean, they saw the, the final resting place of Jesus. And, and Mark keeps naming them. There were eyewitnesses. So the eyewitnesses to the burial bolster then the, the testimony of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Which again, I said, you know, Paul said, if, if, if it didn't really happen, if Jesus uh, stayed dead, then we're wasting our time and, and, and we're, we should be laughing stocks because we've anchored our hope in a, in a myth and Mark is wanting us to say, no, 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 this isn't about a myth. This is about history by which we're saved. This is a real resurrection. Spirit re-entered the body and actually God gave him a, a resurrection body, one that he promises then to those who trust in him, one day we will be raised with. So the reality of his death, the reality of his resurrection are both reinforced by the burial scene and the details and the witnesses Third significance, I think, although you might think it's small, I think it is very practically encouraging to me, is that Jesus' burial, even the details of his burial fulfilled prophecy. We get this little detail in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is this whole chapter um, predicting one day that, that God's Messiah, his, his Christ, his Savior is going to suffer, and he's going to suffer as a substitute in the place of sinners, and it even includes that he's going to die and about his grave. So Isaiah 53, 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. His grave was made with a rich man, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God's sovereign will even extends to the details of where Jesus' body is laid to rest, which is no doubt why in Matthew's gospel, he reminds us Joseph was a rich man and he actually offered his own personal tomb, new tomb, never been used for Jesus to be buried in. I don't think that that's an incidental coincidence, a detail. Uh, Matthew is helping us see, no, even in the details of his burial, this was according to God's plan, not outside of his control. I hope that's reassuring to us. It doesn't get much uglier detail of life than death and burial. It's final, it's sad. It feels hopeless. And even the burial of Jesus, Isaiah is saying, is part of God's plan. It's not outside of his control. God's not wringing his hands. Oh no, no, this was part of God's purpose. In fact, the grave was even got part of God's means of redeeming and giving goodness and grace to millions. And 
exalting his own son as Lord and Christ. If God's sovereignty uses the grave as a tool for goodness and grace, uh, God and his sovereignty will use whatever it is this morning that feels like overwhelming flood or all around your soul giving way. So a reminder of the burial and God's sovereignty over that is this reminder to us uh, that he is sovereign over our, our suffering and our sadness and our despair. We can trust him even to the grave. Fourth, his burial underscores the completeness of his atonement. It underscores, it, it underlines, highlights, puts an exclamation point at the end of the, the finishedness and the permanency of Jesus' atoning work. I want to revisit something that Scott, who was preaching last week, a point that he pointed out but didn't have time to, 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 to deal with it. I want us to, to think about it again. Christ on the cross in Mark, as he recounts it, um, has a remarkable little similarity to the way Mark begins his gospel, the very first scene where Jesus is baptized. Turn back to Mark 1. I don't think this is coincidence. I think Mark, as he's telling the story of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection, is doing it um, this on purpose. He bookends it with the baptism of Jesus and then the way Jesus dies here. See if you can see here the parallel. So at the baptism in those days, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the spirit descending on, on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now go back to Mark 15, 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Two things that happen in both scenes. One, it's the, it's, he uses this word mark only twice in these two scenes, torn open. In both, the barrier between heaven and earth is torn open. The skies are torn open and God speaks at his baptism. And here the veil from top to bottom is torn supernaturally as Jesus exhales his last breath and dies and gives up his spirit. And in both cases, there's also a declaration that he is the son of God. In the first place, the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At the cross, the centurion says, truly, that was the son of God. I think it could be argued that the veil being torn from top to bottom is God saying, with him, I am well pleased. That's what the, the veil being torn means, right? This is unnecessary anymore. Access to a holy God has been secured through Christ. He has paid in full what will atone for our sins. That's the irony of the cross. At the moment that Jesus is hanging and looking forsaken and despised by God, God couldn't be happier and more well-pleased with his son than he is at that moment. Think about that. He's hanging on the cross willingly, laying down his life to uphold God's holy standard and, and declare sin must be paid for by death. 
God is just to require it, but he's also displaying the grace of God because this is God dying on the cross. And he's showing that God is willing to put forth his own son as the sacrifice. And, and this pleases God fully. And so at this moment when the veil is torn, it's this, it's this stamp of approval of God saying, I'm well pleased with that. In Acts 13, Paul was preaching these events, the death of Jesus. And he comes to the point where Jesus had died in his sermon. And he says this, he says, and when they'd carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. Nothing more to be done. They laid him in the tomb. Why? Because he'd finished all of his atoning work. It was complete. The burial is, is the underline and, the, and the, the reinforcement, the underscoring that it is finished. Just think about it. Joseph is hurrying before the sun goes down, before the Sabbath day of rest begins to get all this done so that he can rest. And Jesus sort of hurries up to die, right? I mean, they're surprised that he dies so quickly. And Jesus is laying at rest in a tomb on the Sabbath, finished from his work. Wow. Jesus' body being laid to rest is a reminder that the penalty of your sin is canceled. It's been laid to rest. As surely as his body, it was laid to rest in a tomb. The record of debt that stood against you and all its legal demands has been canceled. And the burial is a, is a picture of that, a reminder of that. It's also a reminder that the power of sin over you has been broken. That's number five. Jesus' burial is something we join him in by faith. Jesus' burial is something we join him in. You don't have to turn. Let me just put it on the screen. Romans 6. This came just before what Jesse had us uh, reading during worship. But Paul, again, says this is why the burial is so important for us to, to, to remember and not rush over. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. We were buried, not just Jesus, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, which we have, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is the visual picture of our old self being crucified and our body of sin being brought to nothing? The grave so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. This is the miracle of new birth. This is the miracle of regeneration, being born again, as Jesus put it with Nicodemus. Something uh, dramatic and, uh, and spiritually transformational in the heart happens when one turns in repentance and faith to Christ as Savior. And Paul says, what happens at that point is an old self dies and is buried with Christ. And a new self is raised to walk in newness of life, which is why Matt Mayer, that song we sang, Christ has risen from the dead, or Matt Marr, I think he says, 
That's not a song he wrote for us to all sing one day when the great resurrection happens. Christ is risen from the dead. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. We, We could sing it on that day. That would be a great song to sing. But we can actually sing that this morning. Because of this, this reality that when we trusted in Christ, some part of an us died and an us was raised to walk in newness of life. So I think that having this visual image of Jesus in the tomb can also be a powerful reminder and an encouragement to us to not just resign ourselves to sin and just acquiesce as if, oh, we're still just enslaved and bound and there's just no hope of ever overcoming or, or walking in righteousness or, or um, resisting temptation as if still woe is me just as much as before I trusted Christ. That's not how Paul argues here. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He wants us to, to remember the grave. Remember the, the tomb where Jesus' body lay? Your old self is laying in that tomb. You died to sin. How can you still walk in it? been raised to walk in newness of life. God sent the spirit of his son to dwell in you as a help. Call to him for help. Don't act dead. You're not as dead as you act is what Paul's saying. I want to ask if you've ever done this in the first place, what Paul's talking about here. Actually coming to God and throwing your hands up and saying, I've come to understand that I'm guilty even by my own standards, let alone God's holy standard, I fail and fail and fail and I can't seem to stop failing. And I'm understanding now that I don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy, good, loving, creating God because of my sin. And I see now that Jesus took that and I wanna trust in him. You could do that this morning. Turn from your sin and believe in him. And Paul says what will happen this morning as you're sitting in this room is the old you will die and a new you will will be raised to walk in newness of life. Be set free from the power of sin, not just the guilt of your sin. That's the whole gospel right there. That's good news. Well, we can't end this morning without the resurrection or we'd pretty much fail a year and a quarter uh, of our lives. So let's move on here to the resurrection Mark 16, verses one through eight. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. These women keep getting named again. Doesn't it seem a bit redundant when you read it all together at one time? It's like within eight verses or so, three times Mark names them all again. I I know there was a schoolhouse rock a long time ago that told us that's what uh, uh, personal pronouns are for, right? So you don't have to say Rufus Xavier Sarsaparilla. Come on, schoolhouse rock, are you with me? You can just say he, right? They just say the women or they, right? And he keeps naming them. Tim Keller, uh, in in his little commentary on on Mark, says this three times within a span of just eight lines. uh, Mark records the names of some women who witnessed the events. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. Biblical scholar Richard Bauckham says, this is another way Mark is letting us know he is recording an historical account, not writing a legend. The repeated names of the women here are like sourced citations. We might call them footnotes. These women have, had been alive at the time that Mark was writing or he wouldn't have cited their names repeatedly. 
By including names, Mark was saying to anyone who read this document, if you want to check out the truth of my story, go talk to those three women. They are alive and they can corroborate everything that I've said. So these three women by name, they come to the tomb and they come expecting a corpse, not a resurrection. Verse three, they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb for us? So there's at least three women here, maybe more. If you read Luke's account, there might be some others that don't get named, but at least three. And their opinion is all three of us together can't handle this stone. That's how big it is, right? So we're gonna need some help. What are we gonna do, right? So verse four, they get there and looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So again, Mark is wanting us to understand it was a big rock, right? And it's just rolled aside. Verse five, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They were alarmed. That can be a positive word for Mark, or that can be a negative sort of fearful um, emotion. That word was pretty elastic. Sometimes it's awe and wonder and amazement, and sometimes it's fear and trembling and oh no. And I think that's it because the angel, verse nine, six says, do not be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. This isn't bad news. Someone hasn't taken the body away. This is good news I'm here with, not bad. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Remember, Mark said they'd seen the place where he had been laid. And now the angel comes back and says, come look again for yourself. See, see the place where yesterday he was or two days ago? There, there he's not there. Verse seven. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. I love that. Jesus had told them actually before they all deserted and denied and fled that when you scatter, I will then after I rise, go ahead of you to Galilee and you will see me there. He had told them that, but uh, Jesus wants the angel to remind them that. Verse eight, and the women went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. I don't think that they disobeyed the angel. The angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. I don't think Mark means when they said nothing to anyone that they didn't actually go do that because the other gospels actually tell us that they did. I think what's happening here, this word astonishment isn't one of Mark's favorite words for amazement. It's a unique one. Out of the seven times in the New Testament, five of those times, it actually translates a trance. In other words, it's a state of mind that is sort of half conscious and, and sort of tunes out external stimuli. Maybe you've had moments in your life where you were so, it's like dumbstruck, right? Something hits you and you're just, you're suddenly, you're just not all there. Your mind's spinning. Have you ever like maybe been driving the car and your mind is spinning on something and all of a sudden you're home and you can't remember even what route you took to drive home? you just like, how did I get here? I'm so thankful I didn't run a red light. Maybe I did and I don't even know. <laughs> but the women, I think, they are so, stunned by the resurrection that they just drop their spices and just flee probably to the disciples not talking to anyone not saying you know what just happened maybe not even talking to themselves they're just what's gone, what's just taken place two things i want to highlight here in this scene and it has to do with the message jesus leaves behind at the tomb Jesus isn't there. It's an interesting thing. It's, it's headed the resurrection, but we actually don't even see Jesus in this section called the resurrection. It's really the empty tomb, but he's left a message and it's short. 
Two things he essentially says uh, to, to, for the women to, to go tell the disciples. Number one, he's alive. Number two, he wants them back. That's the, that's the note. After saying, don't be alarmed, first of all, he says, I want you to tell the disciples he's alive. He's not here. Come see for yourself. They're shocked that Jesus isn't there and that he's risen, but they shouldn't have been. Jesus uh, has at least three times in Mark said, and I will rise again on the third day. Probably means he was saying it even more frequently than that, but Mark really wanted us to know Jesus was telling them in advance. But even still, it just shows how inconceivable to the human mind real resurrection is, right? Even having been told that, it doesn't sink in, right? They're still shocked. And the angel says, no, no, I want you to go tell the disciples he's risen, he's not here. No one returns from the grave, no one beats the grave, but Jesus did. He wants the disciples to know. And his burial underscores the completeness of his death. His resurrection, I think, underscores the completeness of his conquering of death. The resurrection is this, this proof and guarantee that Jesus has found a way to beat death, for humans to beat death. He's done it, and he's gonna bring others with him. He blew the doors off of the grave in such a way that he can usher other people back out of the grave with him. One of my favorite singers, I've mentioned him before, Andrew Peterson here. If you don't know Andrew Peterson, you should get some of his albums and listen. He's a wonderful gospel songwriting guy from Nashville. And one of my favorite songs is one of his oldest songs. It's called Lay Me Down. And the chorus was on my mind all week with this passage. The chorus says, when you lay me down to die, I'll miss my boys, I'll miss my girls. Lay me down and let me say goodbye to this world. You can lay me anywhere. But just remember this, when you lay me down to die, you lay me down to live. When you lay me down to die, you lay me down to live. We talk about God and his sovereignty using the ugliest things even to do glorious things. He's made the grave, the ugliness and the finality of the grave actually the door to life such that Paul could say, I'm hard pressed between remaining alive and having more ministry to live as Christ or to die because that's gain. And Paul says that is far better. He's risen. It means we can anchor our hope to that promise. And we are called to live in the confidence of that promise. What can man, what, is, what can man do to me? We can do a lot. He can blow up hundreds of people in Paris. Beirut but he can't cut me off from that because Christ has opened the way and my anchor is secure in him. So that's the first message of the resurrection. And the second is so beautiful, I think, and tender. And it's right at the heart of the gospel. And it's this is, he says, tell my disciples that I want them back. Think about this. He told them before, the, she the shepherd's gonna be struck. All the sheep are gonna scatter. And when I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee and you will see me. He told them that before. You can imagine though, couldn't you, Peter? In his shame, wondering, not so sure he wants to see me. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure I wanna see him. 
I know he said it. He tells the angel, tell the women, tell the disciples, and Peter, and Peter, I'll meet you in Galilee. And not only will I see you, but you'll see me there. You'll see the resurrected me there. You'll see the, the gracious, forgiving, restoring, loving me there. You'll see my smile there. Peter, we're gonna have lunch there together. Shepherd's gonna regather his scattered sheep. The shepherd's gonna forgive deserters and deniers. And we get to the book of Acts. He's even gonna to forgive the persecutors. And he's gonna gather them all into one big flock and he's gonna send them out in the world to gather his lost sheep. As we finish, I just wanna ask, do you ever feel uh, beyond God's grace and forgiveness like you've just worn it out? Like if God could just go back and do it all over again, he just might not choose to save you. <laughs> that in hindsight, God's regretting it. I love this. Jesus knew ahead of time those whom he had chosen. He knew they were gonna fail him. He knew how they were gonna fail him. He knew that when they failed him, he was going to restore them again. All those in advance, Jesus knew. And he's made us the same promise. He knows all the ways we're gonna fail. He knows all the ways we failed this week. He knows all the ways we're gonna fail this next week. He's gonna keep regathering us as his sheep and even using us. That's where I want us to end, not just our, our, our sermon here, but our series in Mark and as we uh, enter into Advent um, is that he intends to use us. For a year and a half almost, we have been encountering Jesus week after week in the gospels. And we've now again come to the same point of being reminded we, we serve a resurrected savior. He's alive. All of this is true. We see the effects of that for the apostles in the book of Acts. They were different men. They get beat up in, in Acts 4, Peter and John, and they say, well, you can do what you're gonna do, but we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. I'm praying that we are becoming an emboldened people like that as well as a church and at Grace La Mirada. And as we enter Advent, which is a season where, where a lot of our, our uh, community and our society is more attuned to Things of the Bible, even if Starbucks isn't putting on their cup, get over it, right? Just a red cup. People are, are, are used to hearing about Jesus. And, and we have an opportunity uh, to invite people to come consider the claims of Christ. Again, I was gonna bring one up with me. Anyone grab the, one of those little booklets of the Gospel of John? Can I, you have one? We decided to buy these. Our Advent series uh, this year is actually gonna be going through John 1, which isn't the most Christmassy chapter if you know John 1. There's no manger or shepherds or angels in there, but it's this description of the word, God who became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And that's the series title, We Have Seen His Glory. We're gonna spend five weeks in it. And uh, we bought about 700 of these. They're passing them out at uh, La Mirada this morning. We're passing them out here. I wanna challenge every one of us who's been going through this series um, to take one. It's got the whole gospel of John, the text, and in the beginning, an explanation of, um, of the gospel message. How does one get right with God through Christ? And in the beginning, the, the front, we've tucked just a little card that has details of all of our Sunday Advent uh, services, Christmas Eve service uh, date and time, our Christmas concert uh, date and time, an address, uh, I wanna ask you to, to be bold here. Maybe even not give it to the person you'd most expect would want it. Maybe 
the least, the person you'd last expect you want to give it to. I want to ask you to give it personally. Don't leave it on a doorstep and ding dong and run or on a, under a, a windshield wiper, right? Don't leave it as your tip at Burger Parlor and instead of money. That's, that's a real bad way of doing it. Make it personal. Uh, uh, join with it a personal invitation. Maybe, would you, I would love for you to read this. this. This shows you why I'm captivated by Jesus. Would you read through this with me? Could we talk about it? Or maybe, would you just have this gift and would you come with me on a Sunday? We're going to be starting in John 1. And I just love to hear you to hear a little bit about this Jesus uh, that, that, that I believe is the way and the truth and the life. Put it with some cookies and another gift that just sweeten the deal, right? So it's not just a booklet and a tract, uh, but something to eat or it would just, you know, make it a gift. Neighbors, coworkers, whatever. I'd love for that table to be empty by the time we start Advent and for all these things to be scattered. We've been praying. Um, you can take one at the door uh, on your way out. Uh, but as we go, that's what I want to pray for. Um, and we'll go out with one last song. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you are both holy and just uh, and also merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you that we see it so clearly in Jesus, in particular at the cross. And we thank you uh, that sin has been paid for and death has been conquered um, and Jesus is alive and we have a hope that even the grave will not be the end of our story, but eternity and glory can be through Jesus. God, I pray that any, even here this morning, that isn't so sure about that uh, would not just leave and, and, and brush that thought aside, but would, would consider it even more. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you'd open eyes to understand and see like Joseph did um, that Jesus is the very one he said he was. God, I pray for Grace Lamarada and Fullerton. I pray for the other churches in our city as well as going into Advent, they herald this good news. Lord, I pray though for our two congregations, for each of us, I pray against the enemy that would even the today wanna discourage us with six reasons why we shouldn't give one of these to that person right there. And I pray you'd give us a boldness and a sense of expectancy. And Lord, I pray that even in January, we might see people baptized in this room because this December they met the, the crucified, risen Christ and trusted him. Would you do that, Lord? Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.